Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were swan in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Please be seated. Before we come to uh, our study this morning, our last study in Hebrews 11, uh, let me just give you some things to thank God for and to pray for. Uh, The first is a couple of weeks ago on the 14th, you may have seen that Paul and Maureen Lane gave birth to a new baby daughter. I think her name is Eden. I'm not entirely sure about that. But regardless, when you call her up and congratulate them, you can find out the name. Or uh, also, this morning earlier, we received at the other end of the scale, uh, Mary Lou Ulmer, who's in her 80s as our newest member. And uh, this morning, we have an opportunity to pray for Anita Keltonic, who is in hospital awaiting an appendectomy. And uh, it's fairly serious. So do pray for for both John and Anita uh, this morning. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we remember the words of Peter. To whom else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Lord, if that was true for the apostles, it's even more true for us. There is no other source for us of eternal life. There is no other place that we can go to for direction or encouragement or uh, rebuke where necessary or affirmation or assurance. What we need is here in your word. What we need is in our hearts by your Holy Spirit speaking to us. So, Father, we pray for this unique moment in our week that you would speak to us and give us ears to hear you and then hearts to respond to you in faith. In Christ's name, amen. So, uh, last week, Barbara and I were in Los Angeles It was my first time there. It was fascinating and overwhelming. Craig Ferguson famously said of LA, it's a short commute to America from LA. It's like half an hour on the plane. Uh, Someone else has said, LA is so transient, it's the only place where you can actually rent a dog. 
Those are true statements. It seems it's both the pinnacle and uh, the caricature of the best that the world can be. And while I was out there, it got me thinking about the topic of faith uh, in Hebrews 11. Faith, the writer has assured us, is the assurance of things hoped for in this life, but not attained. In other words, because you're living the life of faith, there may not be a star for you on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And because you're living the walk of faith, there may not be for you a mansion off Mulholland Drive. And because you're living the walk of faith, there likely won't be a multi-million dollar lifestyle of the rich and famous hanging out with Harry and Meghan. But if there is, can I say on behalf of Stony Point Church that I hope you will tithe on your fortune. <laughs> More seriously, as we come to this text, let's review what the writer has shown us this summer in this chapter. Kurt told us, faith is like Noah taking God at his word. Faith is Sarah believing God's promise despite her own fears. Faith is Jacob trusting that God will bless us and our children after us. Zach showed us faith expresses itself in devotion, understanding, trust, leadership, community, action, and endurance. Woody encouraged us, faith means we can face life with worship and face death with hope. And last week, Rob reminded us, faith rejects what this world worships. Faith is not about being powerful. It's not about being rich and famous. It's not about being one of the beautiful people. That's the lesson of Rahab. And this is what we've seen as we've worked our way through this chapter. Faith is living for a reward beyond this life. If it was all about this life, it would be a pitiful life for a Christian. No, rather, we are to diligently seek not a thing nor a place, but a person. Jesus Christ, who you remember was promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 as his very great reward. And that too, in Hebrews 11, is the promise that is given to each of us, that we have that same reward waiting for us and present to us now. So this morning, we're going to sum up this chapter with these three final examples of faith in these last verses. So please turn to the passage which Jenny read to us, verses 32 through 40. And again, to this question, as it's been all the way through, what is faith? Who is it for? What will it mean? What will faith mean for those who commit themselves to it? Well, first of all, faith is not, I would suggest to you, for the flawless. It's not for the flawless. Verse 32. As we look at these verses, we need to begin by asking a couple of questions about what the writer means here. Why is he writing in this particular way? Why has he used these uh, turns of phrase that he's used? How come he selects certain examples from the Bible and has overlooked others? Well, to answer the first question, why is he writing in this way? For myself, I have to say, this is really a stirring piece of writing. I think most of us would say this is one of the finest pieces of rhetorical writing in the whole of Scripture. The force of it is extraordinary. And what he's writing is a kind of future nostalgia. He's reflecting on really his extended family in faith, the lives that they've led and at what cost and with what example they've been to him, with what joy they were led towards Christ 
though they didn't know the destination. Who were these people? Well, I think if we had him up here, he would say, these people are our people, they're your people. You just haven't met them yet. What more shall I say, he writes, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. The world was not worthy of them. The commentators have had a field day with the style of this. They ask, did the writer begin this way saying, what more shall I say? Because he was struggling somehow perhaps to find material. Perhaps he was writing to a deadline. Perhaps he had only so much scroll left so he couldn't fit in all the stories. The consensus is, although we probably knew this already, is that it's a rhetorical transition. In other words, he's saying this to his Jewish readers who remember have been following this tour of faith in the Old Testament because he's wanting to persuade them that the gospel has been there for them too in the stories of the Old Testament. He's saying to them, do we really need to go back again through all the stories of faith that you already know? Isn't there more than enough evidence for what we have been talking about, about faith in Christ? So second question, why does the writer here identify some heroes of faith and ignore others? And it's quite obvious that there are many people that he's actually overlooked. He hasn't mentioned them. For example, he references the book of Judges, but of 17 judges, he mentions only five, including Samuel, who was, you remember, both a judge and a prophet. And you might ask, well, what was wrong with the others? What was wrong with Othniel or Jair or Shamgar or Abdon or my uh, personal favorite judge, Ehud, the left-handed assassin who took out the monstrous Moabite king Eglon and then escaped through the royal toilet? I'll Leave that story to read for yourselves. Was there no faith in those stories? Well, speaking of Ehud, I think we can say there was a great deal of faith in that. I'm sure that faith was required for what he was called to do that day with his life on the line and the task before him. But the writer of Hebrews has chosen these particular heroes not because of their sterling strengths, but because of their obvious inadequacies the ones he's chosen. So here's Gideon in Judges 6, who turns out to be not a mighty warrior, but a mighty warrior. And General Barak in Judges 4, who is, it turns out, as cautious as a mouse. It's Deborah the prophetess, if you read that story, who has to tell him how to be a soldier. Up, up, she says, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? What are you waiting for? And here's Samson, who unlike Gideon was nothing but confidence, but had about as much self-control as the Incredible Hulk. And his story, as you know, is that he was ultimately defeated by his hairdresser. And then Jephthah in Judges 11, probably one of the greatest generals of the Bible, was utterly self-controlled, but to the point of absolute rigidity, keeping his own pagan oath and then tragically sacrificing his own daughter to prove that he was a man of his word. And David, the great king of Israel, well, you know about him, the man after God's own heart, who murdered his close friend after stealing his wife. And finally, Samuel, who wasn't flawed in any of these ways, but he was a child when he heard the call of God and had no example to follow except of that of a corrupt and weak priest. 
So you can see what he's doing. All of these characters were insufficient in themselves to the task to which God had called them to. Yet despite their utter insufficiency, God used them wonderfully in the covenant story leading to Jesus. So much so that come the last day, none of them, I suspect, will stand up and say, look at how great I was. No, how could they? Rather, they will say, not great me, but great God, great Savior that has given us the gift of faith and brought amazing things about even through our utter inadequacy. I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. On the day when you don't particularly feel like a hero and you don't feel extraordinary, you look in the mirror and all you see is your own inadequacy. On that day when you, all you can say is, I blew it again. Or the days when you look back at all that you've done for Christ or attempted to do and there's really not much to show for it. On those days when God has called you to some huge task or maybe simply to just keep on keeping on and you feel utterly inadequate and totally exhausted. Well, my friend, be couraged. Because it is, the writer is saying, to the anxious, to the timid, to the totally spent, to the child that God can use, to those who are still struggling with sin, wretches that they are, but clinging to God by his grace, they will change and they will persevere and they will do the work that God will do through them. And this is precisely, of course, the message of the New Testament. This is Paul's testimony of faith in 2 Corinthians 12. But he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient to you for my power is made perfect, not in strength, not in heroism, but in weakness. So faith is not meant for the flawless, but for the obviously flawed. Second, faith is not for the fallow, verses 33 through 34. Reading these verses again, what more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. I feel I need to apologize for the word fallow. It's a word usually used in agriculture, as you know, describing a field that is left dormant. But the dictionary also uses it in a figurative sense, meaning something that is potentially useful, but not put to that active use, which I think is the very mistake that most of us make when it comes to faith. We see faith, we tend to see faith, as something we will accumulate. And I think Presbyterians, in my experience, are particularly bad at this. We see faith as something we're accumulating or growing or particularly gaining information about, rather than what faith actually is, which isn't potential, it's actual. Faith does. Faith, Jesus said, can be as small as a mustard seed. It just needs what the mustard seed has, which is the readiness to act. So what can we see, say about faith after looking at all of these stories of faith here in chapter 11? Well, if someone were to define faith, I think from this chapter, they would say faith is obedience to God put into action. Like the general Barak heeding Deborah and actually getting off his bed with sword in hand. Or like Gideon doing what God tells him to do with his troops 
no matter how absurd it seems or how anxious he is. Or like the young boy Samuel who listens and responds multiple times to the call of God. Which shows you, I think, if you are very young here, that the Lord won't necessarily wait for you to grow up to call you to follow him in faith. And as you're reading this, the writer lays out here in this uh, narrative section the actions of faith in two groups. There's a method behind what he's saying, two groups of biblical examples that are slightly different. So look at verse 33a. The first group, he outlines, mark those who have attained great things because of their faith in God. It doesn't take much imagination to see here David among the conquerors, or Samson among those who enforced justice, or Abraham among those who obtained promises. The second group is slightly different, verses 33b to 34. It marks those who were miraculously delivered because of their faith, because they put their faith in God who would rescue them. So here is Daniel, who by faith stopped the mouth of lions. Or his friends who walked into Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, you remember, and by faith quenched the power of fire. Or Gideon, who became mighty in war and by faith put foreign armies to flight. And the women, the mothers who watched as God, through the faith of Elijah and Elisha, raised their sons again to life. All of them were rescued because of their faith. Now, God was the actor. God was the one who made it happen. God was the one who miraculously delivered. But their part was that they actively put their faith in him. And he rescued them. Right before the Civil War, one of the big names in American popular entertainment was a French tightrope walker by the name of Charles Blondin. His act consisted of walking 160 feet above Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He walked above it in a sack, on stilts, on a bicycle, and once he even carried a stove onto it, onto the tightrope, and cooked an omelette. But the time he really got people's attention was when he walked across the tightrope above Niagara Falls, backwards, wheeling a wheelbarrow. And when he came off the tightrope, it was to cheers and to applause. And he asked the crowd whether they believed he could wheel someone across Niagara safely. Yes, they cried. Well, he said, which of you will get in my wheelbarrow? Crickets. Now, each of the people that we've heard about in Hebrews 11 got into the wheelbarrow that God placed before them. And I would say it would probably look a little different for you in your particular situation, but it will be the same essential challenge of faith to you. Here's the wheelbarrow, God says, are you going to trust me and get in and let me wheel you across Niagara? Will you believe? Will you get into God's wheelbarrow or will you Treat faith as simply a thinking word and not a doing word in the vocabulary of your lives. Because faith will affect how you deal with temptation. Will you believe that God will look after you better than what sin is offering you as the way out of some unhappiness? And God will be able to look after you when money is the question. 
because faith affects how you deal with money. Will you hold on to it under your own control, giving you the security that it offers you? Or will you trust God by giving him back what, after all, is his money to fund a mission or to support a work among the poor or to resource a friend who's in need? And faith will affect how you deal with your children. Many of you have discovered this. And it will affect how you deal with your work. And it will affect how you respond to your friends. And it will affect how you respond to conflict or to disappointment or to deep sadness. Who are you going to take the problem to? Who are you going to put your trust in? Who for the long term are you going to allow to wheel you around in his wheelbarrow? In John 7, we read that Jesus spoke to the crowds at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. He cried out, apparently, Is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. And I would say to you, and you know yourself, obviously, far better than I do, knowing how thirsty you are for the things that you are thirsty for, perhaps some of you for the answer to who you are, or for what your value is, or for what the plan for your life might be, faith says to you, go find it, come find it in Christ. It's there waiting for you. And so we read in verse 6, haven't we? Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's the pivotal thing about faith. That faith calls you, in a sense, to have faith in faith, that it's a rewarding thing. It's not simply an idea that God will reward you. The gift of faith is not like a rain shower. It doesn't come automatically. You must seek God. You must talk to God. You must call out to him in your need. You must ask for his help as you persevere. He will find you. Without faith, you cannot please him. But think about it. When you do trust him, when you do employ faith, think about the corollary of that. It's saying you can please God. You do please him as you hang on in faith or as you obey him in faith or as you get into the wheelbarrow. So faith is not passive. It's not so often what we turn it into as simply an object of information. It is a doing word, it is an opportunity, and it is there for you and me today. It's not for the fallow. And finally, faith is for those who will remain faithful, verses 35 to 40. Look at the last two verses in the chapter. And all these, all these people, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. These last verses, as you read them, are really quite sobering reading, aren't they? The writer who has spent all this chapter telling us about the exercise of faith concludes by telling us how difficult faith can be. These people endured because they believed the promises of God, but unlike us, they never knew what was being fully promised to them. It's remarkable. And rather than say, well, how extraordinary they were, it's an opportunity for us to say how great the grace of God was to them that gave them the opportunity, 
that gave him the willingness, that gave him the stick to to hang in there, holding on to the promises of God, waiting for Christ. And this was the experience of the prophets. If you look at this, we can pick out one or two prophets from the experiences he describes here. Here's Zechariah, not the prophet, but another Zechariah from 2 Chronicles 24, murdered by stoning by the very people as Jesus described him later as he was leading them in worship. Or the prophet Isaiah, who tradition tells us was sawn in two. Or the prophets described by Elijah in 1 Kings 19 when he turns up absolutely dispirited at the cave in southern Israel. The prophets who'd been killed by Jezebel uh, by her orders at the sword. Or of those others who'd wandered through deserts, destitute with no predictable food or water supply or clothing or shelter. Elijah himself among them. And I think the temptation, again, is to see these people as unusual, extraordinary. But we're told later in Scripture, in James, that people like Elijah were people just like us. And Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That rather than being extraordinary, this will be the norm for those who seek to follow Christ in faith. And of course, persecution can take many forms. It will not always come with a big sign on it, announcing itself. A surprising amount of persecution for the prophets involved not physical suffering, but rather a kind of social exclusion. I can show you the references for this later, but the prophets were regularly persecuted through ridicule through being laughed at, by being given the silent treatment, by being falsely accused, by having their words thrown back in their faces. And Christians, of course, can suffer those things too, often from others who claim to be believers. The prophets were regularly physically beaten up. They were tortured, the writer says. Many of them lived in perpetual fear of being murdered and imprisoned. Yet by faith, they persevered joyfully accepting these things as their calling for the glory of God. And again, how did they do that? Well, they did that by the sufficiency that God provided as they sought him in faith. And of course, our brothers and sisters in Pakistan or Iran or North Korea or China or Russia or parts of Africa or elsewhere are going through identical things and they have learned to rejoice in Christ also and they tell us that they pray for us Paul says all who desire to live a godly life in other words all who actively seek to follow him in faith acting upon the promises and the commands of God in a darkening world such people will be persecuted it is unavoidable Someone once asked a group of people if, that, that I was with, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, perhaps the days are coming when we will find out. I was thinking of Sally this week, who we sent to the mission field six months ago. And without a doubt, if you know Sally, you know it was Sally's passionate faith that sent her there. 
And in the middle of the testing situation that she's currently in, she's been writing to us about it, what has her faith led her to think about? Well, she wrote this week, and I was struck by what she wrote. She was so touched and heartbroken by what we've all been seeing from the pictures in Afghanistan. And what has broken her heart is something I think has instructed me in faith. Because for Sally, what she's seen has not been just another depressing weekly item in the news. She says this, I know there are many there, she writes, many vital and heavy-hearted things for which Sony Point is praying, but I just want to ask for prayer for them, for the Afghans, for the Afghan people, that you would join me in praying for them. I know that's a vast number of people worldwide, but they each have a face and a name, people who are so trapped in so much darkness. And I was asking myself, how has Sally gained a heart like that? Well, I think it's her faith, the faith that she has exercised in going to the mission field, in having to seek God daily in the face of difficult circumstances, that has changed her. God has used it, and we know this from John 15, to produce a new heart in her, a heart that looks more and more like his, because faith will change you, and faith will change what's most important to you. It will give you an ability to depend on God, to hope, and you don't know how, but also to endure, even though it seems minute by minute. That, too, is the fruit of faith. But I think the, the background of all of this, and the, really the challenge to people like me, is you won't know until you start engaging with faith, until you put yourself in a situation where faith is required. When you start risking things for faith by putting aside those things, either sinful or not, that you've been tempted to rely on, and then deliberately seek God's call by faith, refusing to believe that God has simply called you to life in these United States as just another sofa spud, but to get out there and really be led and seek to trust in what Christ has called you to do. I wonder, when was the last time you or I actually asked God, is there something else you want me to do other than simply waiting for you to return or for the end of my life? It may be that the call of faith for you is different than the one you're currently experiencing, or that the call of faith for you, as hard as it is, is the call that you are currently experiencing. And that's where this chapter ends, of course, verse 40. The writer reflects that apart from us, speaking of these heroes of the Old Testament, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the reminder, this was always the plan, that those who looked ahead in the promises to Christ and those we who look backwards to the cross should be redeemed together by only one method, by only one means, and that is in Christ. It's an amazing thought to me, especially after returning from the glories of California, that ultimately the promised land has never been a location, but a life together for the people of God in the presence of God by faith. So how are we to sum up this chapter and these examples that are given to us, not simply of sterling, out-of-reach heroes, but of people like us who have chosen to walk by faith with Christ. Well, let me sum up 
by quoting the missionary David Livingston, who used to say this about the commitment of faith. He said, God, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay on me any burden, only sustain me. Sever any tie in my heart, except the tie that binds my heart to yours. That's our prayer, isn't it? May that be our resolution together as we pray for each other, as we encourage each other, as we call each other to follow Christ in faith this next year. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of faith, the gift in so many forms of faith, that as we engage with you, even in a tiny way, we receive such blessings and such fruit from it, that it calls us then to persevere more within faith and to go further with you in keeping on, keeping on. Lord, would you give grace to us as we go on in faith? Would you give grace particularly to those who are struggling in faith or for those for whom faith is new or for those whose faith is old but it has become remarkably difficult? Lord, would you grant us the grace to see more of Christ, to rejoice more in him, and to find perhaps to our surprise that you keep on giving us faith. In Christ's name, amen.